four years after he started contributing to The New Yorker, John Seabrook was brought on as a staff writer. That same year, 1993, they published another in a long list of great articles John has written for The New Yorker, where he still works today. Called The Flash of Genius, John's article from 1993 may not have been something you read at the time. Although, to be fair, since the film adaptation of John's article only earned about $4.6 million at the box office, it's probably safe to assume you didn't see it in theaters either. Hopefully, you've had a chance to see Flash of Genius since it was released in 2008. If not, and you don't want spoilers, go ahead and give it a watch. I'll wait. Did you watch it? (laughs) I've always wondered how many people actually do that. I'm guessing if you're like me, and if you haven't seen the movie yet, you probably won't go see it before listening to this episode. If that's the case, sorry for the spoilers. Anyway, the term after which both John's article and the movie are named is a reference to something that the U.S. federal courts required to determine whether or not an invention could be patented. Basically, the inventor had to have an epiphany or a, quote, flash of genius, end quote, before the government would acknowledge it as an invention and not just tinkering turned successful. If something did fall into the latter, it would be public domain and not something the inventor would get rights to. That's not a term used today, though. In fact, the flash of genius test, as it was called, was only around for about 11 years between 1941 and 1952. Now, if you did happen to see the movie, you'll know that the events in the movie happened well after 1952. But are they historically accurate? I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. It's time for Two Truths and a Lie. Listen closely for the two truths scattered throughout the episode, then by process of elimination, you'll know which one is a lie. We'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Okay, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Robert turned down a much larger settlement from Ford because he wanted to prove a point that it wasn't okay for them to take his design. Number two, Ford and Chrysler both had to pay Robert tens of millions of dollars for infringing on Robert's patents. Number three, Robert Kearns got his inspiration for the intermittent wiper after a champagne cork popped and blinded him in one eye. Before we get back to the story today, this episode was actually a listener request, and it came from my mom. Yep, my mom listens to the show and has been extremely supportive. So I'll take this opportunity to do something I've never done on the show and say what every professional athlete says into the camera. Except I'm not a professional athlete, and this is a microphone, not a camera, but anyway. Hi, Mom. (laughs) I've always wanted to do that. Anyway, a little more seriously, thanks for recommending this movie. I really enjoyed learning a lot of new stuff doing the research for this episode, so hopefully you'll learn something new as well. Alrighty, without further ado, let's compare history with Hollywood's version of Flash of Genius. After seeing those five words on screen, based on a true story, the movie opens with a rather vague sequence on a bus where we meet Robert Kearns as played by Greg Kinnear. 
After this, we travel three years before that vague opening sequence. Unfortunately, I could never find any documentation that the real Robert Kearns was pulled off of a bus like we see the police do in the opening sequence. It doesn't necessarily mean it never happened, but it's just not something we have proof to verify. More important than that, though, I think, is the timeline. The movie never mentions a date, so when is this happening? After the scene on the bus, the movie says it's three years before the opening sequence, but there's no year on the opening sequence, so three years before when? Not to get too sidetracked here, but let's do a little detective work to figure out how accurate the movie is to what we know of the timeline of history. To figure this out, we'll have to rely on the only solid information that we have, the radio announcer's voice in the background on the bus. If you listen closely, there's a few things we can pick up when he's talking about baseball. The first clue is when he says the Orioles continue to shoot skyward like a Saturn V. The Saturn V was a rocket from NASA that was used for the Apollo program. For example, Apollo 13 used a Saturn V rocket. The reason why this is important to our story is because the mention of this in the movie gives us a ballpark time frame. We know from history that the Saturn V had its maiden voyage on November 9th, 1967, as a part of the Apollo 4 mission. But that's not the only clue we have. What about the other part? Well, the announcer on the radio is talking about baseball, and he mentions that the Orioles have clinched the pennant a week ago from whenever this incident on the bus is happening. Again, we can compare this to history. On September 22nd, 1966, the Baltimore Orioles clenched the American League pennant with a 6-1 win over the Kansas City A's. That was a Thursday, so if the radio on the bus is talking about it happening a week earlier, that means the movie is probably starting sometime during the week of September 26th, 1966. And it also means that the Saturn V rocket hadn't really had its maiden voyage yet, so there might be a bit of a conflict there, but it's the closest time when these two things that are being talked about match up. And since they are close, for all we know, maybe the radio announcer heard about the Saturn V rocket before the maiden voyage. It's not like it was just created the day before it had its maiden voyage. Anyway, that would mean three years earlier would be 1963. That's when, according to the movie, Robert is driving his wife, Phyllis, and their children home from church one rainy Sunday when Robert notices his windshield wipers are squeaking. The rain isn't coming down fast enough to keep the gloss wet, so the wipers squeak as they go back and forth. All of that is pretty accurate. Oh, and Phyllis is played by Lauren Graham in the movie. I say pretty accurate because, according to John Seabrook's article in The New Yorker that the movie is based on, this actually happened in November of 1962, although some other sources mentioned that it happened in 1963. Regardless of the exact timing, this flash of genius moment happened much like what we saw in the movie. Although it wasn't really the squeaking that annoyed Robert. Well, it might have. That is pretty annoying if you've ever had that happen. But according to most versions of the story, the wipers were moving at a pace that was annoying his eyesight. To know why that was a big deal, we have to pull yet another story from the movie. This is a story that the movie tells in bits and pieces throughout the entire film. We learn a bit in the beginning when Robert and his wife are at a dinner with friends, and she mentions that Robert's eye was injured after he tried to pop a cork on a bottle of champagne. Then we learn a little bit more 
much later on in the movie when Robert is in the courtroom and tries to explain that the cork made him legally blind in his left eye. Although one minor difference is that some versions of the story claim it was Robert and Phyllis's wedding night instead of their honeymoon, but close enough. As the story goes, after they were married in 1953, Robert and Phyllis were in a hotel room. Phyllis was getting changed in the bathroom while Robert was sitting on the bed opening a bottle of champagne. He'd never opened a bottle of champagne before, so he didn't really know how to properly open it. Before he knew, the cork popped off and hit him in the left eye. As Robert would later recall, he fell back onto the bed and started bleeding all over the sheets. The commotion made Phyllis come out of the bathroom to a bloody mess and she started screaming. That incident simultaneously left Robert legally blind in his left eye and also made him more keen to protecting the good eye he had left. The good eye being his right eye, not his left eye. So then it was about a decade later in 1963 when Robert had the idea to invent a wiper blade that moved a lot more like the human eye, blinking. Back in the movie, one of Robert's friends by the name of Gil Previk helps finance Robert's invention idea, as well as introducing him to executives at Ford. Gil is played by Dermot Mulroney in the film. But Gil's presence isn't true, because as best as I can tell, Gil Previk isn't a real person. At least, he's not mentioned anywhere in John Seabrook's article or in any of my other research about the actual facts that happened. Despite this, though, the basic gist of what's happening in the movie is still pretty accurate. By that, what I mean is that Robert worked on his invention at his home and poured everything he had into it. Not only him, but his entire family was swept up by it. Robert's wife, whose name really was Phyllis, recalled that any time it rained, everyone in the family would stop whatever they're doing and go for a drive just so they could test the wipers. Finally, he was ready to take it to a car manufacturer and demo his invention. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Just like the movie shows, Ford was first on his list. According to the real Robert, he went to Ford first because they'd given him some wiper motors to experiment with, and all in all, he simply liked them the best. But as we learned earlier, Gil Previk is a fictional character, so obviously it wasn't Gil who got Robert into Ford. 
Now is also a good time to mention the people in the movie at Ford who aren't real people. In particular, I'm referring to the big boss guy at Ford, Macklin Tyler, as played by Mitch Pileggi, and Frank Certain, who's played by Daniel Roebuck. Even the muscle of sorts for Ford, Charlie DeFeo, appears to be a fictional character. He's played by Tim Kelleher in the film. So if all of those were fictional characters, who were the real people? In truth, it was Robert's brother, Marty, who isn't in the movie at all, who got Robert in at Ford. Marty was an engineer at Ford and connected Robert with a man named John Kupiak. John was another engineer at Ford that Marty thought might be able to help Robert out. He seems to have held a similar position as to the one we see Daniel Roebuck's version of Frank Certain hold. Even though the names were different, that first demonstration seems to have gone fairly similar to what we saw in the movie. Robert drove over his Ford Galaxy with his invention installed in it and demonstrated the intermittent wipers to John. John, in turn, was impressed. They set up another meeting with the executive engineer at Ford, Joe Neal. He's probably closest to the character of Macklin Tyler that we saw in the movie. That meeting happened about three days later, and again, Joe was impressed with Robert's invention. If there's a big difference between reality and the movie... It's with how Robert kept Ford's engineers from seeing the invention up close. While the real Robert was, like the movie shows, standoffish about letting the engineers at Ford see how his invention worked, he was also polite. During this second demonstration, some of Ford's engineers were able to take turns running the wipers themselves to prove that they worked. They poked under the hood of Robert's car and even started asking a lot of questions about how it worked exactly. Of course, when Robert showed Ford's engineers his invention, he didn't come out and tell them how it worked, but it's probably safe to assume they were able to get quite a bit of information out of their poking, prodding, and constant questioning. They were especially interested because, as it turns out, Ford was already working on their own version of an intermittent wiper. In particular, that was something they offered on their 1965 Mercury brand, and was a system that came from a company called Trico Products. That system worked, but just barely. It wasn't made very well and had plenty of design flaws that Ford's engineers knew they would have to find a better solution for. But the point here is that the movie is correct in mentioning Ford's existing interest in an intermittent wiper. In the movie, there's a moment where Mitch Pileggi's version of Macklin Tyler asks Robert how much the unit price is for his new invention. That's something Joe Neal asked the real Robert Kearns near the end of this second demonstration. Just like we saw in the movie, this put Robert over the moon. It meant Ford was interested. Going back to the movie, this excitement changes once Robert sees a car drive by one rainy day. The car has windshield wipers, as all cars did, but... This one had more than that. It had intermittent wipers. It was a Ford with intermittent wipers. Did they steal his invention? The gist of the story is correct here, but that's not how it happened. And again, the movie doesn't mention any sort of a timeline. But it was in October of 1963 when Robert Kearns met with Ford for the first time to demonstrate his invention. Then, after the second meeting, which was just a few days after the first, Joe Neal sent Robert away with the task of running the wipers for three million intervals to ensure it could withstand long-term usage. And that's when Robert bought the aquarium 
something the movie shows, but earlier on, and set up his wiper system in the aquarium. Then for months, he just let it run. He'd keep an eye on it, or if he had to leave the house, Phyllis would keep an eye on it. Or if it wasn't Robert or Phyllis, it was one of their children. Just like the movie shows, Robert had wanted to involve his kids in what he assumed would be the company business. Throughout the tests, Robert would rebuild components and continually tweak his invention. It was about a year later, on November 16, 1964, when the wipers finally completed their test. It had run 3.4 million times. Robert let it run a few extra hundred thousand times, just to be sure. That's when Robert reached back out to Ford, who, to Robert's surprise, seemed to have lost interest. After all this time of testing his wipers and the costs associated with it, Robert was starting to get desperate for money. He was working, as the movie shows, as a professor, but he had to feed his family, and any extra money that they had went into buying components for his wipers. Remember, he's continually tweaking it during those 3.4 million runs. That proved a problem because Robert had intended on getting patents for his invention, and those aren't free. Since money from Ford didn't seem to be coming anytime soon, Robert turned to a friend of his named Dave Tan. That's T-A-N-N. If there's anyone who might be the real Gil Previk, it would probably be Dave Tan. Dave's family had taken over Robert's father's business and had grown it into a decent manufacturing company. Being in Detroit and in manufacturing, Tan Corporation made a lot of car parts. After seeing Robert's invention, Dave was so impressed he agreed to help finance it. In exchange for the rights to the wiper, Dave paid for the patents, $1,000 a month in R&D costs, and sent Robert home with $12,000 in cash. Robert's first patent was filed in December of 1964 and granted in November of 1967. Soon after, Robert went to Ford to offer a demonstration with a different group, the team in charge of wipers for Ford. They were so impressed with Robert's wipers that they announced, similar to what we saw in the movie, that Robert had won their wiper competition. They were going to use his wipers in their Mercury line for the 1969 models. Another key point that the movie shows that actually happened was when the wiper team at Ford told Robert that they needed to get full disclosure of the engineering behind the wipers so they could get it through legal. After all, wipers are a safety item on a car, and the law has certain requirements. Still oblivious of what was to come, Robert thought this sounded reasonable and finally explained how his intermittent wipers worked. Oddly enough, a few months later, Robert Kearns was notified that Ford didn't want his wipers anymore. Their engineers had figured out a solution so they wouldn't be needing his system. Sure enough, in 1969, Ford's brand new intermittent windshield wipers rolled out. And sure enough, it used the exact same configuration that Robert Kearns had designed. Back in the movie, the next major plot point happens when Robert starts to use those patents. Ignoring multiple settlements out of court, Robert sues Ford for stealing his invention and takes them to court. The movie makes it seem like Robert's lawsuit wasn't really about the money as much as it was about proving a point that Ford stole his invention. That is true. But the lawsuit wasn't fast. It didn't happen overnight. Robert dumped everything he had into the lawsuit. Every single penny. 
every moment of time. There'd be paperwork stacked up around the home, countless documents and legal papers to sift through. Fortunately, Robert didn't have to do it alone. His family pitched in, very much like what we saw in the movie. Phyllis and his six children all helped out, essentially learning how to become lawyers as they went along. Probably the biggest inaccuracy as far as the movie is concerned is when it shows that Robert didn't have any lawyers when he took Ford to court. That's not true, at least not for the Ford case. But it did cost Robert Kearns his marriage to Phyllis like the movie shows. She left Robert in 1980 due to all of the stress of the lawsuit. Simply put, she just couldn't take it anymore. The obsession. As the movie comes to a close, we find the result of the case. By now, it's probably not too surprising that the movie doesn't really mention much about the timeline. At one point, there's a mention of it being four years later, but then again in the courtroom, we see the jury go off to deliberate and then come back seemingly in no time with their verdict. In truth, the case that began in 1978 finally saw its conclusion in 1990, when, after a three-week trial, followed by another week for the jury to deliberate, a verdict was rendered. It was very much what we saw in the movie. Ford was found to have infringed on Robert's patents and was ordered to pay $10.1 million. Not the $30 million settlement that Ford had offered out of court, but it was about more than money to Robert. As he once said, if he had accepted the money from Ford, it would have been the same as admitting that it was okay for them to do what they did. And he wasn't okay with that. At the very end of the movie, there's some text that then mentions Robert went on to sue Chrysler and get an additional $18.7 million from them for infringing on his patents as well. That's also true, but there's more to the story than that. You see, the Chrysler lawsuit overlapped the Ford lawsuit while the Ford case lasted from 1978 to 1990, Robert's case against Chrysler started in 1982 and lasted for a decade, finally resulting in the courts ordering Chrysler to pay him $18.7 million in 1992. That's $18.7 million with interest, by the way. So according to some sources, that probably totaled about $30 million. But that didn't stop Robert. Now a millionaire, Robert went right back to work in his largely unfurnished apartment surrounded by legal paperwork. He'd go on to sue other car manufacturers like General Motors and Mercedes, but his strategy of being his own lawyer with his family became a little overwhelming and resulted in his missing the deadlines to file necessary paperwork. So the cases against General Motors and Mercedes were dismissed. After all of this, Robert was quoted in one interview with simply saying he just wanted to make windshield wipers. All of the lawsuits are just to stop others from manufacturing his wipers so he could make them himself. Sadly, the lawsuits were so time-consuming that he never got the chance to turn to manufacturing. On February 9, 2005, Robert Kearns passed away from cancer. He was 77. Less than four months after Robert's passing, Philip Railsback also passed away. We haven't talked about Philip much at all throughout this episode, but he played a very important role for our story because he was the man who adapted John Seabrook's article from The New Yorker 
into the screenplay for the film that we've been covering today. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. If you want to learn more about the true story of Robert Kearns, his invention, and his fight to keep the car manufacturers from stealing his design, I would recommend that you'd start with the article that we just talked about, John Seabrook's article from The New Yorker that the movie is based on. I'll put a link to that and plenty of other resources over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Before we get to the answer to the two truths and a lie game, I would like to thank my newest patron, Riley Lewis Morris. Well, newest at the time of writing this. By the time you hear it, Riley may not be the newest, but I have limited time when I can record, so I typically write podcasts a month or two ahead of time before it's actually released. You get the point. Anyway, thanks so much for the support, Riley. You are awesome. If you want to support the show, dear listener, you can do that by hopping over to patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. Your support goes to doing things like buying research material, books, and all of the other costs of the show. So thank you. Okay, now it's time for reviews. Here's a great five-star review from Scothia entitled Fabulous Podcast. Quote, what's not to like about this podcast? Smart, interesting concept presented with not only professional polish, but sincerity and a high entertainment quotient. I'm binging all the past episodes. I just can't get enough. End quote. Oh, I'm, I'm glad my podcast is considered binge-worthy. Thank you so much, Scothia. I really appreciate your taking the time out of your busy binging schedule to leave a rating and review. Thank you. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Robert turned down a much larger settlement from Ford because he wanted to prove a point that it wasn't okay for them to take his design. Number two, because of his lawsuits, Robert Kearns made almost a billion dollars from car manufacturers. Number three, Robert Kearns got his inspiration for the intermittent wiper after a champagne cork popped and blinded him in one eye. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number two. In truth, Robert's invention didn't make him almost a billion dollars. Instead, it was tens of millions. So a lot of money for sure, but nothing compared to the grand scheme of things. For example, John Seabrook's article mentions that Ford spent about $10 making their version of Robert's wiper and sold them for $37. That's an extra $37 added to the car's total cost. So that was in 1969 when Ford first rolled them out. That's a difference of $27 in 1969, which would be about the same as $183 today. So for the sake of argument, let's say all car manufacturers making about $183 per car that has intermittent wipers. How many cars do you think that is? Probably most of them that are on the road today. At least I've never had a car that does not have them. Have you? In a 2014 article from the LA Times, they estimated that there were about 253 million cars and trucks on the roads in the United States. At 183 bucks a pop, that comes out to about $46.3 billion worth of windshield wipers out there. Of course, that's just a quick and very rough estimate. With technology costs going down and such, it probably doesn't cost the same amount that it did in 1969. So I'm also fully aware that it's not going to be 100% accurate by any means, but I think the point is pretty clear. The money that Robert made from his invention 
really was a pittance compared to the amount of money that car manufacturers could be making from it. What do you think about the story of Robert Kern's legal battles? Some people point to this case as a great example of the little guy fighting against big corporations bullying around independent inventors. Do you agree with that? Or are you in the other camp that thinks maybe indie inventors can take advantage of big corporations just trying to get the buyout instead of really trying to further progress? Let me know in the Based on a True Story community on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Based on a True Story podcast. And don't forget, you can pick up your own Based on a True Story t-shirts and merch over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash merch. You can also follow the show on Instagram. It's at Based on a True Story podcast where I like to post some photos of the faces and places behind each episode. You can also find me directly on Twitter, where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Or if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at based on a true story podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. Music